to offer the, our needs and wants before the Lord as we seek to find contentment in Him, perhaps the theme for today's service, we come bearing all our requests to Him too. Therefore, take a moment, a quiet moment, I'll give you a silent moment to ask of your God all your needs. Let us go before Him in prayer. <clears throat> Our Heavenly Father, we are grateful, O Lord, that we could come before you asking what we need, that you've instilled within each one of us who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ a spirit, a Holy Spirit that intercedes even when we, O Lord, fail to, to call upon you. We come, O Lord, this morning gathered as your people, calling upon you in need for our congregation and society throughout the world. We, O Lord, begin by thinking of those who are in government over us, we think of Mrs. Mary Miller, Mrs. Tammy Duckworth, and Mr. Dick Durbin, our elected representatives and senators from here in Illinois. We pray, O oh Lord, for them. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would instill upon them grace and truth and, and wisdom as the holy law that you have written upon their hearts. We pray, O oh Lord, that they themselves would be conformed to the patterns of your scriptures. We pray that as they represent us in Congress and the Senate, that you, O oh Lord, would be gracious upon us, that by their rules, O oh Lord, that we would be a people that prosper. But we pray, O oh Lord, for that in their rule, that your church would also be protected, that we would continue in the great grace that we have had in preaching the Lord Jesus Christ and Him crucified freely and openly. We pray, O oh Lord, that when these representatives that represent us fail, but whether that be morally or ideologically, we pray, O oh Lord, that you would restrain their hands that you would convict them of their sins, and that you would draw them to the Lord Jesus Christ. But we pray, O Lord, that by their rule, we would be a people that prosper. We pray also, O Lord, for the work of your church throughout the world. We think this morning of the Taylor family, Nate and Aaron, as they plant churches in Scotland. We pray that you would be merciful to them, that the Scottish people in many ways are some of the most secular people in all of Europe. A difficult work that you've given these saints to pursue, but we pray, O oh Lord, that you'd give them great success, whether that be in the depth of faith of those who are under them, or even, O oh Lord, as we pray for new converts. We pray, O oh Lord, for our mother Kirk in this regard. We pray that you soften the hearts of the Scottish people, that the faith that they once proclaimed triumphantly, aboundingly, whether that be in the open fields of the Covenanters or found within the church itself, we pray, O oh Lord, for the gospel to continue to go forth in Scotland. We pray that you would use the Taylor family in this regard. We pray, O oh Lord, you'd use many to plant churches there, that the church of Scotland would continue in faithfulness and fidelity to your scriptures, even if that means by way of a new or different denomination. We pray also, O oh Lord, for those who are lost. We think of those who are lost, particularly not only in Scotland, but within our own country. O oh Lord, in the events of our own country, we might be tempted to ask, how long? But we also, O oh Lord, pray for those who do not know you. We pray for those within our families, but those who are within our own country. Oh Lord, many, many millions 
do not know the name of Christ or know Him well. So we pray, O Lord, that You'd use Your church in this country particularly and well. That You would use our church, but also churches in the PCA, but even through broader evangelicalism to witness Christ to this dead and dying country. That a culture might see renewal through the proclamation of Christ as well as our own community here. We also pray, O Lord, for our own church. We think as we gather this summer season, we think of those who are graduating. We think of our college students. We pray for them, O Lord, now that you would be gracious and merciful to them as they tarry on into a new season of life. We think of our, if we have any high schoolers in that regard as well, or eighth graders, we pray, O Lord, for our congregation, but also congregations in our community that those who are in college, those who are in high school would be continually grafted in and well known within your covenant community. We pray, O Lord, that as our seasons of life changes, we would not forget our stability, our comfort that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, O Lord, for Larry as he continues to heal, bless him as well as Joanne. We pray also, O Lord, for our broader congregation, that we would be a people that learn contentment and learn contentment well. Make us a people, O Lord, that are content in the lots of life that you've given to us. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, our scripture reading this, uh, this morning comes from Philippians chapter 4. I invite you to turn there with me. This is our penultimate sermon, the second last sermon that we'll have in the book of Philippians. And it is tied very well with the previous text. If you recall last week, we had studied uh, Paul exhorting the Philippians to be a people that were not anxious, to kill, in other words, bad anxiety in their lives. And we saw that that comes through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, as we would, we would argue. But this week we see that the other, maybe perhaps the main cure of anxiety that is found in contentment as well as in verse 13, as you all know, perhaps even by heart, that I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Perhaps one of the favorite verses of the Christian world today may be your favorite verse. This is a verse that we'll study today. And perhaps not to upset you too much, you probably misunderstand this verse all too often. We probably all have a propensity to think that as we hear Philippians 4.13, that I can literally do anything. Well, stand with me. Hear from the Word of God now from Philippians 10, or 4, verses 10 through 13. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Here ends the epistle lesson, and this is the Word of God. You may be seated. On 
July 27, 2009, the cover of Sports Illustrated featured a Florida Gator quarterback named Tim Tebow. A glistening photo, as you would expect from Sports Illustrated. Uh, uh, Tim Tebow exuberating all sorts of confidence, determination, and zeal within that photo had the title of this, Tim Tebow, Man of Many Missions. Why was Tim Tebow on Sports Illustrated all those years ago? It was because he was a different type of athlete. He was an athlete that welled up joy in any southern Christian's home. He was the emblem. He was the example. He was the one that was a championship quarterback that loved the Lord Jesus Christ. Still does. He still, in all of his philanthropy, focuses on the ministry of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. But what struck me in that Sports Illustrated edition, under each of those eyes, as you'd know for Tim Tebow, was Phil 413. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What did Tim Tebow mean by that? Well, in the context of as you think of him as a professional athlete, it means that he can excel. He can do it. He can be a championship quarterback because of the Christ who strengthens him. This is a favorite verse. I wonder how many of you have this verse memorized, probably all of you. I wonder even further of how many trinkets in your home have Philippians 4.13 labeled upon them. They are taped onto your walls. They are on your coffee mugs. They are on your shirts. They are on your graduation invites. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I wonder if we went around one by one how many things you could count with, it, with that verse in your home. I have it at least once in my home, maybe a couple times it's a verse that is popular within our household. But what does this verse mean? Does it mean to draw ambition, big dreams, the sky is the limit, I can do anything, I can do all things? With graduation season upon us, is it that our graduates can go on and become the greatest in their fields? What does Philippians 4.13 mean for us today? Is it a verse of unlimited power? Or does Paul have a different idea in mind? As much as I love Mr. Tebow, was he wrong about how he applied 4.13? How are you wrong in how you apply this great verse I dare say it's not about degrees, it's not about football championships, it's not about winning games in the perfect family, it's about being satisfied on this earth, being satisfied in the Lord Jesus Christ, being content even if you are lacking or even abounding. Because Paul, as you look down at this verse, Paul is not at the highest moment of his life. If Paul were to apply Philippians 4.13 like maybe you would or Mr. Tebow, he would say that I can do all things. I can get out of prison today. I can convert Rome tomorrow. I can become the emperor by the weekend. I can do all of that through him who strengthens me. But that's not what Paul has in mind. It's not football games, college degrees, or even empires. It is something much different. It is learning to have strength to endure all circumstances, learning to persevere and to be faithful, even in the midst of what could cause us to have great anxiety in our lives, as we've learned from the previous passage last week, but finding contentment 
today. And so when you are made low, look for contentment in the Lord. That is the purpose of this passage. When you are made low, look for contentment in the Lord. There are three truths that I want you to take from this idea of finding contentment in the Lord. The first truth is this, is that you can be content despite your situation. You can be content despite your situation. Look at the situation of Paul in verse 10. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. You can see Paul's concern. Paul, Paul's chief concern as he's writing these, this one verse is that he was without. There was a time when the church of Philippi was not supporting the apostle. It begs the question, why did the, why did the apostle say to the Philippians, your concern is now revived? What happened before? Why wasn't the church of Philippi supporting the apostle before? Why? Well, there have been many speculative answers. Some argue that perhaps as the Philippians were called to support the church of Jerusalem by Paul, that they supported the church of Jerusalem to the point of not being able to support the apostle. They sent all their tithes and offerings, not to Confex, but to Jerusalem. Because of that, they were unable to support the apostle. Others argue that, well, Paul is on his deathbed. And so the church of Philippi said, why would we support him? We can get a lot more bang for our buck if we support Silas or Barnabas or anyone else who is still out in the world. Others argued that perhaps the church of Philippi was impoverished and they were in need themselves. They had nothing to give. I find all of these unsatisfactory. Think of how Paul has been so fond of this church. They have not withheld any giving because they have given to another. They have not withheld any giving because, Christ, uh, because Paul is on his deathbed. Paul speaks very positively about this church, exceedingly positively. And he does so because he loves this church particularly, uh, individually, more than perhaps many of the others that he has written to. This is not a backhanded statement by Paul. I think what's going on here, why the Philippians had not supported the apostle was practical. It wasn't out of need or lack thereof. It was sending support 800 miles across the sea to Rome was not an easy task. It was much easier to send to Jerusalem. The logistics, they would have to get on two various ships. You remember the story of Epaphroditus who goes and is, event, uh, is called by the church to go and minister to Paul. He almost dies on the voyage. It was not easy to send support to the apostle. And I think that is what's holding them up. The revived concern is the actual act of sending what is needed to Paul to Paul. They had concern. Paul references that at the end of the verse. You indeed had concern. But the opportunity was not there. It wasn't there because it was difficult to send support. We live in a world that is very easy to send at least monetary support. I could wire any of you money and it would be there in your bank accounts by tomorrow. It is very easy to wire money even across the Atlantic, across the Pacific. It's not hard, but in these times it was difficult. We are an instant gratification society looking at a text that had no such thing as instant gratification. It would have been laborious. 800 miles traveling even from here to Tuscumbia, my old home, without a car. Think of the difficulty. I would think twice on how I would get there point 
by point, and that's what the Philippians did. But the, the delay that that causes caused Paul's situation not to be ideal. It was a difficult situation. And Paul, in this, what is striking is that he says, I can rejoice in the Lord greatly in that you have revived your interest for me and sent. But even in the passages previous to this, Paul has constantly communicated his joy. Whether it be in great triumph or failure, he has joy. Paul's whole shtick in this whole book is joy, joy, joy. Having a good out view, outlook on life itself. Even in the midst of concern, Paul says you can be content. Even in the midst of difficulty, you can be content in the Lord. Kent Hughes channeling his inner Paul says this, trials are not a a sign of God's displeasures, but they are opportunities to learn perseverance in the Lord. That's what Kent Hughes says even about this passage, the opportunity. Paul is not having any experience of being displeased in the sight of God. It is rather an opportunity that the apostle uses to learn to persevere. It's difficult. It's not easy. There is the note even of the struggling to find an opportunity. There is no opportunity. There's an art then that we can learn from this passage of waiting. Sometimes, at least the male in me always wants an immediate solution. It is the husband's role in every marriage that struggles and baffles the wife as he seeks to solve her problems. Well, she's not always looking for solutions. So that is my way of thinking. There is a gift to waiting especially when there is no opportunity. Sometimes we want to uh, 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 ram and create an opportunity that does not exist. Sometimes when we are struggling, what the apostle says is instead of solving the solution, there may be no solution. Instead, we must learn to have joy and to have contentment therein. It's not woven in my DNA to be content when there is problem. Maybe it's not yours as well, but the first thing we can learn is that we can be content despite our situation. The second truth, and probably the meat and potatoes, the substance of the passage itself, is that you can learn contentment in your study. It's so fascinating. Look at verse 11 and 12 with me. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hungry. It is amazing. When you look at this text before us today, what do we learn about contentment is that it is almost like a life skill. It is something that we can learn as the apostle himself learned. Paul had to learn this. Paul had to learn to be content both in need and in abounding. He had to learn a skill. Sometimes I I believe that when we look at the idea of contentment, that it is almost merely an emotion. I, I feel content today. But it is more than an emotion. It is a skill to be learned. Like cooking, gardening, reading. As some of the younger college graduates even now You have to learn to 3D print. I'm sure if I look through the models of some of the guys who have made 3D printing structures, the first ones were probably terrible, absolutely terrible. But as they got them behind the ropes, they've gotten into it, they've studied it more, they've learned how to perfect, perfect how the ooze comes out of the 3D printer to make something great, and they're getting better. They are learning it, learning the skill of gardening. You have to kill a few plants 
Learning cooking, you have to burn a few meals. We have a new oven, and the new oven does not cook like the old oven. We burned a few meals, burned a few cookies, and learning to use it well. That's how contentment is. It's a skill to be learned. Learned like anything else in your life. It is a skill that we are called to learn. You know, things come naturally to us, and some things come unnaturally to us. Contentment may be one of them. Some of us are better at cooking naturally than others, but we can still learn. We can still learn. When I felt the inward call to the ministry when I was in middle school, I didn't realize what it had all entailed. Uh, I thought, I liked the idea of becoming a pastor, and I felt called to become a pastor, but I did not know what it entailed. And unfortunately for me, I excelled in math and science, uh, which is unfortunate if you're going to become a pastor because your life is reading and writing. My lowest, my lowest on the ACT, reading and writing. I was not a reader or a writer. This came as bad news when I entered my college degree, as my entire pastoral studies degree was reading and writing. I wrote more than literary majors. That's all I did, read and write. I had to learn to read and write to become your pastor. And it did not come naturally. It took seven plus years of study to learn the English language well enough to stand before you here today. It is quite sad. If I had tell, told my, my younger self this, he may have said, I'll just become a woodworker or something. Uh, uh, I, uh, Scott, you're going to be reading hundreds of pages a week. You're going to read the Bible every year. You're going to write a 10-page sermon every single Sunday for the rest of your life. I would have made, thrown my hands up. This is not natural. This is not natural for me at all. But you can learn. I learned to love reading and writing. It did not come naturally to me. Even as I read today, sometimes I, I still struggle. Not natural, but we can learn it. The skill that demanded in my ministry to be a minister itself, it demanded me to learn to read well and to write well. I'd be a poor pastor if I didn't have those skills. I might be a good visitor. I might be a good encourager, but I need these skills to do this trade. In the same way, in order for you to persevere in this life, you need to learn contentment. Like the minister needs to read and write, you need to learn to be content in your lot in life. But what is contentment? We've gone this far. We have to define it. What is contentment? Well, in the ancient world, contentment was translated in many ways as self-sufficiency. It was to be self-sufficient with water, food, and provision. Plato says, For the Creator conceived that being a man which was self-sufficient was much more excellent than being one which lacked anything. The idea in the ancient world, as Paul was even writing, was this stoic idea. Since there was no cosmic uh, power to care for you, you must care for yourself. And in order to care for yourself, you made sure you had food. You made sure you have water. You made sure you had provision for you and your family. This was what we talked about last week in regards to anxiety with the sixth sola. You had to be a person that cared for yourself. You did everything for yourself. Self-sufficiency was the name of the game. But notice how Paul turns this on its head. That same Greek word, contentment, is found within the context of not finding sufficiency in yourself, but in another. That's what we'll see in the third truth. We weren't going to jump the gun there, but nevertheless, we see that our contentment, our sufficiency, is not self-sufficiency, but the sufficiency of another given to us. 
It is the reminder that everything that we have in our lives, we are being provided for by a God that cares. This can be taken to an extreme. One of my favorite shows as a kid was Dr. Phil, and I remember Dr. Phil won, I don't know why it was a favorite show. It was my grandma's favorite show, and so it was my favorite show. And we used to watch it after school on some days, and I remember a Christian coming before a show, and he, he had, this Christian had no job. This Christian had no job. He said, I will wait for the Lord to provide for me and my family. And the sad thing was, uh, in his laziness, he and his family were destitute. They weren't fed well. His kids were malnourished. And he said, the Lord will provide. He took contentment maybe to his extreme to saying, I will not care even for myself at all. No showers, no food, whatever. The Lord will just provide. That's not the extreme that Paul has in mind here. The call is to have contentment in your lot in life, but not to do nothing with your lot in life. It's a reminder in some ways of what Paul has written previously. Paul has not had an easy life, but he has learned to be content with the life that God had given to him. Eight years before this letter, he writes this in 1 Corinthians, to the present hour we hunger, we thirst, we are poorly dressed we are, and buffeted, and homeless, and we labor working with our hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. I, I imagine that as the apostle wrote these words almost a decade before he wrote Philippians, he would now dwell upon these words and say, oh boy, I had to learn. I had to learn a lot more than I realized. I had to learn to suffer and to endure well. But what, are, but what situations then are we to find contentment in? I, I like the, the, the rails that Paul gives us. It is both in poverty and in abounding. How do we be content in poverty? Well, if you are reminded of the early church, they were an impoverished people most typically. They did not have a lot. In, in the American ecosystem, with the American dream, you are promised some scale of moving up the economic ladder, whether that was realized or not, not getting into that today, that is up for you to decide. But nevertheless, there's at least a fantasy of moving up the ladder. In the ancient world, there was not even a fantasy. You were poor, you died poor. If you were a serf, you died a serf. If you were born a baker, you died a baker. Many were impoverished. And Paul here is calling to find contentment in the Lord, even in an impoverished state that there is still an ability for the believer to be content this is why the in, in, at least in human the human terms why the faith prospered in rome most were not citizens most were impoverished in many regards and they found hope outside of themselves in the gospel even in their lowly state they had no hope of becoming something better than what they were and the apostle teaches them that they can learn to be content, that they can learn to be satisfied with what the Lord had given them. The book of Ecclesiastes reminds us of this quite thoroughly. I love, probably my favorite Old Testament book, and it is because it teaches us contentment. But it is also a value in the book of Ecclesiastes and well as here to be content in your prosperity. Whether you are poor or able, Paul had probably not been abounding for quite some time, but he remembers when he was abounding. When he was a citizen of Rome, he, rec he referenced it in the previous passage, when he was a part of the, the chief group of Pharisees, when his family was well regarded 
he was abounding. He had all that he needed. Perhaps when he planted the church of Philippi, he and all of his needs were abounding. He had more than he needed. He has called the church also to be content in their abounding. You see, this passage of calling for contentment is not only for the poor, it's for the rich. I remember J.D. Rockefeller's famous statement about retirement when a reporter asked him, how much is enough? When will you have enough money? And Rockefeller famously says, I just need one more dollar. Discontentment, if there ever was. I'm not going to jump ugly with Mr. Rockefeller. He was a Christian and gave a lot of money to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, but that philosophy of discontentment is found therein. Just because you have a lot doesn't mean you're satisfied with your lot in life. Always wanting more. I've known many a doctor who can make as much money as they possibly can to the sacrifice of their own families. They're discontent with their lot. They need a bigger house. They need to expand their practice. They need to grow this thing as big as they possibly can. Discontentment found all. And so how do you have contentment when you are rich? You have to pray then for the protection from becoming a lover of money, from becoming greedy, from gluttony, from materialism, from squandering what the Lord has given you, from being decadent in your life. But how do you apply this passage today? Well, I think if I had to look around, we are probably a bunch of discontent people. My greatest example of probably for this is in your pockets is a phone. And on that phone, how often, this is an indictment of myself as well, how often have you just scrolled? The young people call it doom scrolling in some ways. You just keep scrolling and scrolling and scrolling. You're never satisfied with the scrolling that you've done. Whether it be on YouTube, TikTok, Facebook, you just keep scrolling. You need to find just one more video to watch, one more thing to enjoy. You just keep on going and then hours pass and you realize, where has my day gone? You feel crummy for it, but you continue to do it. That is the spirit of discontentment. That one episode was not enough. I need another. We all have that spirit. It's interwoven within the American system. But we learn here of the secret. That's the third, the third truth I want to teach you about contentment, the secret to contentment. Verse 13, you can find contentment in your Christ. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That's the purpose of verse 13. It cannot be abstracted outside of the book of Philippians. It must be found within. And if it's found within the book, that is the secret of contentment right there. I can do all things. That all things does not mean I can become the president, a rocket scientist. I can become the best in my trade. What it means, it's in light of verse 12, I can do all things. Whether I am poor or rich, I can be content in my circumstance. I can do it all. I can persevere through it all in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul doesn't hide this behind a conference. He doesn't say that this is a secret that's locked behind a wall. There needs no passcodes, no biometric locks, no paywalls, like some of your favorite magazines. You don't need any of that. Paul gives it right front here. The secret that Paul talks about in verse 12 is verse 13, that you can find strength in the Lord Jesus Christ to persevere even in difficulty. In the early church, someone read verse 12 and 13 together and say that the secret is not revealed, that you have to find some secret grace, some secret truth that is unknown that Paul doesn't reveal, some secret magic formula, and then you will be content. 
But there's none of that. Paul quite succinctly says the secret here in verse 13. And if you can sum it up in even less words than 13, it is the sufficiency of Christ. How can you persevere in difficulty or greatness? How can you be content in your lot in life? It is by recognizing the sufficiency of Christ. And that skill that I am talking about in growing contentment is found in your ability to better understand Christ's sufficiency for you and your life. It's that vital union that you have with your Savior, the one that died for you. When you recognize better and better, more and more throughout your life, that He is the one that is sufficient, you will grow in your contentment. You'll be satisfied with your homes. You'll be satisfied with your jobs. You'll be satisfied with your degrees. You'll be satisfied even in the midst of perhaps poverty as well as abounding. I and you can have the power to persevere in all circumstances through the one who strengthens you. That is the power that the Lord offers you. You can be content today. Sure, there are times where you'll still burn a few cookies. You'll hop back into the old man that you once, or woman that you once were, where you're deeply discontent. But the hope and the promise that Paul says that you can learn today is bound in the sufficiency of your Savior. Therefore, this passage applies to each and every one of us. It applies to you. It applies to you in that when we applied the, the previous passage with anxiety and calming that bad anxiety, but it applies for all of you today because every one of you is in that spectrum that Paul has given to you. Some of you may feel impoverished. Some of you may feel and believe that you are rich, and every one of you is in between. You, today, can have a sufficient Christ that offers calmness for your soul. You need not tarry by being awake at night tonight for what will be tomorrow because you have a sufficient Christ that will enable you to carry on through. I've had many experiences where as you, I look back, I just wish I had a little more contentment and my responses to family and friends would have been different. It would have been less of a need for me to solve the problem right in front of me as quickly as I could. If I look back on those situations, as difficult as they may, as they may be, many a time they are softened by the passage of time. As, as eager and as urgent as many of the situations in your own life are, there's a reminder that even as time passes, you'll look back. You'll, one, recognize that the Lord really was sufficient, that somehow I'm still a believer after all of that. But also in the way that I wish I would have recognized what I recognize now about the Lord's work in my life. He is the one that protects you. He is the one that is your sufficiency. I wish I could preach through Ecclesiastes next week, but I won't because it is such a good end to the book of Philippians. Learning how we are to live as vapor in this world. You're here one moment and gone the next. We referenced that last week with Dr. Reeder and Dr. Keller. Here one moment and gone the next. We might have one day, one week, or a couple of years. What will happen with our lives after? Well, Ecclesiastes teaches us it is like a vapor. Your legacy may be great today and terrible tomorrow. Who knows? But today, you can have contentment in Him, no matter what the outcome is. So when you are low, look for contentment in the Lord. You must remember these three truths. 
that you can have contentment despite your circumstance, you can learn it in your study, and that you find it in your Christ. And so today, it is fitting then that we would have the Lord's Supper immediately after. A reminder, a table, that as we renew our vows to the Lord Jesus Christ, we are reminded of the contentment that we can have in Him. That by His broken body, we are saved. That by His spilled blood, we are redeemed. This is a table of contentment. For those who are discontent today, this is a table that is prepared for you. A table where you can see the sufficiency of Christ and eat it right before your very eyes. Therefore, today, as we close this sermon, remember 2 Corinthians. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness and insult and hardship and persecution and calamities. For when I am weak, as Paul says, then I am strong. Will you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we thank You that in the Lord Jesus Christ, we can find the sufficient Christ, sufficient in our lowliness, sufficient even in our own self-perceived greatness. We thank You for the One who paid it all, create in us the skill of contentment. Give us hearts that seek to implement it in our lives day to day. Draw us to it in Your Scriptures as well as in Your, in your great and great example. We pray all this. In his name.